Hello, Connor. Hey, how's it going? So, my wife, who knows us both, is ecstatic that we are recording a podcast. She thinks uh, this is like some kind of conversive death match, and she is certainly going to be listening in. <laughs> but for the broader listeners, I should probably say that this is potentially, more than likely, based on the quality of the topics that you presented this evening, going to be Attic Aficionados Season 2. We have a large group of existing listeners that absolutely love the Attic Aficionados podcast and were very upset when Brandon was no longer able to record. And the overwhelming emails and all the support that I've received seem to indicate that it was probably a good thing to restart this podcast. Also, I was waiting for our mutual friend Jay. I was recording a podcast, or nominally recording a podcast with her this week. She didn't turn up, unfortunately. I thought to myself, I'm just missing a quality of conversation in podcasts in my life. Let's see if we can re-kickstart this thing. For folks listening in, can you please introduce who you are? Sure. So, my name's Connor Seitz-Bowen. I'm in my early 30s. Uh, I live in Pittsburgh. For the last decade, I've worked with nonprofits uh, doing logistics work. And uh, right now, I'm kind of between projects. And I don't know what I'm doing yet, but I have a little bit of time to figure it out. Very good. Very good. And in terms of, like, the standard... Attic aficionados banter. What what's your nerd credentials? <laughs> My street cred. Yeah. Okay. So I have some amount of computer nerd cred because my my father is a computer scientist and has been since he had to get his undergraduate in math because the computer science department hadn't spun up yet. So he's been in it since the beginning. Uh, but I also spent two summers working at the uh, computer history museum in. It's somewhere in the Bay Area. I can't remember the town. Yeah, I'm going there. Is it Mountain View? I think it's Mountain View. I'm pretty sure it's Mountain View. It's an interesting account. I know it's account. off of the 101. Yeah, which could be yeah. anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's near an In-N-Out Burger, so it's anywhere. <laughs> really? The way I know Connor, so to, to give some introduction to you as well, is you've been a long-time listener to a series of my podcasts. We had the opportunity to meet when you were last in the Bay Area, I've been genuinely frustrated since that you're no longer in the Bay Area because the quality and breadth of conversations that I had with you were particularly good, hence my wife's interest in us doing this podcasting death match. And also, you touch on a number of bases. You haven't touched on role-playing and miniatures and all this other kind of stuff. So why don't we kick that off as a topic? You have uh, a long-standing history in role-playing and sometimes miniatures, sometimes dice, also, like, cargo container role-playing and this kind of stuff? What, what's all that stuff about? I started playing Dungeons & Dragons, oh, it must have been towards the end of grade school and the beginning of high school, which mm. was the end of 8th grade and ninth grade. I went to public school in California, and the system was kind of kindergarten through third, fourth through eighth, but... The school was kind of divided so that the fourth and fifth graders and the sixth, seventh, and eighth graders never interacted. And then high school was ninth through twelfth, and then college. And I guess other places do it differently. But yeah, so somewhere on the cusp of between middle school and high school. Uh, and it was right at the end of the books we got originally, my friend Andrew got, and they were second edition. Mm. And at first he got them from the library, the Menlo Park Public Library. Because that's where I, I grew up. Not where I was born, but where I grew up uh, was Menlo Park, California. And then he got his own copies. And then third edition came out maybe about six months in mm. to the hobby. So I don't quite remember what the dates were then, but that would date right when it was. And then I played all through high school and all through college. So that went through the edition change to fourth edition. I think TSR had collapsed as a company before I started playing, but maybe only by a couple of years. Yeah, an interesting period. I mean, you have down in the notes here, favorite edition. I am on the cusp of first and second edition, and certainly first edition is very curious as a rule set, and I still have a first edition, what I guess was called basic set, somewhere. But for me, second edition was where it was at because it just had the breadth of possibilities. And I must have played it for about seven years. I mean, probably from age maybe five to 13, that kind of period. I had a series of really curious and eccentric friends 
which enabled playing Dungeons and Dragons to be really like the kind of lingua franca of my group, like the way in which you established yourself and these kind of things. And I started GMing probably when I was about 10, I think, maybe somewhere from 7 to 10, I started doing it occasionally and then I started doing it seriously from 10 on. And these books are very important. I mean, the conclusion of Attic Aficionado Season 1 was me actually travelling to Westchester in Pennsylvania and presenting some of these books to Brandon just to give an introduction to, like, the raw nerd elements that was the thing that started off me in this trajectory. The things that I loved about D&D initially were the modules. And the modules, and actually the Monster Manual modules, and also I played the what was called, what was it called? Oriental Adventures? I mean, none of this stuff is politically correct anymore. I'm not even sure how you can talk about second edition Dungeons and Dragons in a modern context. But yeah, just the richness of creating imaginary worlds. I had a friend that I worked with a few years ago that referred to the chainmail bikinis pretty frequently. There was this element to Dungeons and Dragons, which was in no way subtle. There was kind of an explicit sexuality that the early folk in TSR talk about as being a major recruiting force and obviously there's the whole thing that this was potentially demonic potentially satanic wide variety of possibilities in there but most recently i mean i went for after age about 15 i didn't play DD at all until the past 18 months where i played it at work and i've concluded the dungeons and dragons game for a variety of reasons but the main reason actually is i don't really like dungeons and dragons like i don't like the system I think it's a doesn't allow for the kinds of potential and possibilities that I'd like to do through role playing in general. And certainly, in your notes, you talk about a variety of other role playing games that certainly interested you. I mean, could you talk? Did you fall out of love with D and D at some stage, or what happened associated with that thing? Third edition was an interesting time because Wizards of the Coast was mindful of what had happened in terms of public mindset in the 80s about dungeons and dragons and so like the dungeons and dragons i played was quite sanitized compared to earlier editions um because it was made in a different time it was like the early 2000s and also during the sort of third edition period third-party publishers had free license to print nearly anything and they did enough so that like the whole system kind of got away from wizards of the coast and pathfinder I guess, is Dungeons & Dragons, except it's not. It came out of that. They kind of let the genie out of the bottle. But I transitioned to 4th edition, uh, and I think everybody hates 4th edition, except for me and a few other people. Uh, but I like 4th edition because it's the best tactical miniatures game mm. I've ever played. Mm. It's not a great role-playing game. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, it's not really Dungeons & Dragons if Dungeons & Dragons is supposed to have role-playing elements but if dungeons and dragons is a square grid on paper with miniatures in like a fight to the death yeah the fourth edition is amazing i mean certainly for me miniatures were always a bridge too far in australia they were always inaccessible expensive i had a small collection but never enough that was just a constant kind of crack addiction at the time for the company D&D game that I played, miniatures were central because they represented how battles were being fought. I mean, they represented any kind of combat and even general movement to give a sense to people of where their character was in a given space and these kind of things. So I think miniatures, for me, historically were connected with other games, games other than Dungeons & Dragons. Although I used miniatures representatively in Dungeons & Dragons through my GMing, it's only really in the past 18 months playing at work that I've had every single character, every single creature represented in a miniature form as well. And I think that's been relatively important for me just to introduce it to the folks at work, many of whom played Dungeons & Dragons a long time ago and a few of whom had never played previously. So the role of miniatures has always been interesting, but I also have a really keen fascination to miniatures from the late 70s through to the early 90s and a wide variety of companies which is kind of separate for me from D&D although D&D was a kind of gateway drug or an entryway into this particular thing and I I know you still you still maintain quite a few miniatures right 
Yeah, so I, I, I kept all of them. Uh, they were the one uh, – I've moved around a lot uh, over the last decade and downsized and upsized and switched living situations uh, enough times that there's not a lot of things that I have from high school. But uh, I do have uh, like a hardware box of miniatures. And then pretty recently I um, I realized that – I had a bunch of other miniatures, but they didn't fit in the box anymore, and so I just went and got three much larger boxes mm. and moved everything into boxes. So I have three boxes of miniatures. But the thing I actually have a lot of, which I didn't... It was an unconscious part of the hobby, but one I realize is actually my favorite part, is I have a lot of square-inch uh, train tiles mm. printed out, or purchased and the purchased ones are either on uh on like thick card stock uh, or actually on die cut cardboard yeah so which are like sort of two and a half dimensional i guess um sure. for three-dimensional terrain and i mean i've used recently dwarven forge quite extensively i have actually three boxes at arm's length i took all my original dwarven forge to pennsylvania and passed them on to normally i guess brandon through his daughter so i lost all of that stuff initially and i think one of the things about the end of the season one was i just thought to myself mm, i kind of like this stuff so i actually paid the extra money and got the painted versions uh, which were interesting i was going to use them for the D D game but now i just have them in the box i guess for when people come and play games which is the, the kind of continuation for this whole thing i mean certainly i have co-workers one in particular who's son was very interested and i passed on a bunch of miniatures and other stuff to him dice and the rule books actually that i used the fifth edition rule books for the company D game but now my wife does a regular babysitting gig in fact that's what she's doing currently and her friend's kids are of the age where they can be introduced and they're already nerd kids you know but they're of the age where they can be introduced to this kind of stuff and she thinks that they're certainly they'd be receptive and i think that's what i see now with all this stuff is associated with another generation. Kids that are in their, I don't know, better than reading age to mid-teenage years when they have this ability to you know, create fantasy worlds and the extra time and the extra you know, paper and pencils and all the other kinds of stuff that are really critical for this. So I feel there's a degree of social responsibility always with you know, parent intermediaries or what have you just to pass on some of this stuff to another generation you really want to influence young people to think outside the parameters that they're provided and that was certainly my experience with D&D was it was about creating very rich organic environments from a very young age where I could like think about political systems like why are political systems the way they are read about a series of political systems in the country that I'm going to create what kind of political hierarchy is going to exist what kind of schisms what evil all these kind of notions which are so central even to you know modern day existence when i was seven to ten i was creating worlds that had their own possibilities there and i think that's really critical for kids to have that ability to think dynamically about not just the way things are but the way things could possibly be i mean was that your experience with playing dnd i think it was i think to some extent the um the, the game master's screen was a little bit like the proscenium at a community theater, right? Like it's this, this institution that you have at least a little bit of cultural knowledge that you are embodying when you decide to run a game and you are like creating this world for your friends. Or if, if you're a player in someone else's game, uh, you are at least hopefully, if you're not a jerk, you're trying to support the shared story that you all are creating together and that yeah there is like a really pro-social quality there that definitely was evident even though like reflecting back on it my middle school group was was mostly some kids that i really stopped hanging out with as soon as high school started because they were not actually very friendly people some of them and uh and the one friendly one went to a different high school so i just kind of like me and him fell out because we just like didn't ever interact mm. i stopped using the game master screen when i was about 13 and i remember exactly how it happened i had a friend who i used to gm for continuously 
and uh, we were playing a game with his sister's friends, maybe three 15, 16-year-old girls who we were playing with. We did this over a summer, and it became very clear that um, the girls were very flirtatious through this. And my friend was really angry about this because his sister and his sister's friends were being flirtatious in this game. So there were a series of like really strange and tortured situations that happened through this particular game. But at one stage, he actually physically ripped apart the Game Master screen in front of me. And I remember just looking at him and just thinking, and there were a series of these incidents. He also destroyed some books of mine through this period too. And I stopped using, from that moment on, I never jammed with a Game Master screen ever again. What I do is actually almost like a play rehearse what the, actually with the work one, I have resorted to maps on a couple of occasions, but really it's all from memory. And the thing that I love about playing or loved about playing D&D at work was actually the numerical memory that you have to remember, like how many hit points are left on the various creatures, right? As they're killing them. And all this other kinds of strange numerical stuff. But the ability to have floor plans in my head and to map it out either with tiles or what have you. But yeah, there were various techniques that I, I remember at the times that I changed it. But this one, age 13, in this circumstance, the summer holidays with these girls and my friend. That was the time from then on, no more Game Master screen. Like The other thing is it creates it creates a divide which is used historically in the games. And you see for people that still use the screen quite critically, but I actually like to interact. I like not just to walk around, but just to not have a visual block between me and the players. So, you know, it's a style thing, but it's interesting. I mean, when you see these professional GMs and what have you, and they had still have the screen up, I always look at them and think, ah, so quaint. <laughs> I think my style uh, is usually to have, I guess, like if a big GM screen is like a like a heavy shield, I would have like a buckler. Mm. I would have just just a little space of mystery, you yes. know, where secret dice get rolled. And it's kind of it's maybe so like one hand is obscured and they can't quite see what dice I'm picking up. Mm. Um, there's a technique which I use all the time, which is that you play probability games in your head. So you should be rolling dice in the order of once every couple of minutes or slightly more frequently i like using d20s but i occasionally use d12s Just yeah to, no i i do the same yeah. thing and, and and i always think about um i always have to remind myself uh, I, uh, as i do it i always think about uh flipping coins flipping coins flipping coin fallacy mm. um because when there's a statistics class trick where they have half the class flip coins a hundred times and, and write down heads, tails, heads, tails, heads, tails. And they have the other half of the class pretend to flip coins, but actually just make up a, a string. Just, okay, which one are we going to do, heads mm. or tails? Let's do heads this time, then heads again, then tails. And you can instantly tell which ones are random and which ones aren't, because the random ones actually do have seven or eight heads in a row. It's uh, interesting. I, I basically, I have a physics degree. I basically did at least the first half of my physics degree with an understanding, and this actually came through high school. In high school, I was part of like a local chemistry team and we did titration for folks listening in. It's where you mix two substances and there's a point where the pH level changes of the substances and a special dye turns color. But within that, I worked out the frequency where I could get better titration results manually than the recorded you know, method could do it. Because, again, with probability. So that's an interesting thing, because I think the coin flipping thing is just illustrative that most people can't understand probability in the context as you describe it. But once you realize that the probabilistically, there are going to be occurrences that, as you say, occur, you know, seven, you know, seven occurrences in a row, you can actually use that to understand a lot of really quite complicated probabilistic physics as well. And it's interesting, certainly I didn't actually compete in the titration finals. The girl who I was nominally dating at the time won a trip to Switzerland to compete in the titration Olympics, which was extreme at the time. But when I got to university, I carried on this notion that you can actually get better accuracy 
on experiments, if you understand the experimental method and you also understand how fallacious, how flawed, really, the nature of manual experimentation is. And I think these kind of elements moved, obviously, into my development of simulation. But it's interesting, this linking of statistics, physics in the real world, simulated worlds, all these kind of things are kind of, I don't know, kind of smudged together in my mind. But it's interesting that you mentioned that. I think my earliest exposure to that was, and I think it's because my dad was a computer scientist. When we would go out to dinner, we would usually play cards. And so we would bring cards. But as we played cards, my dad would just ask everyone probability questions as each hand was unfolding. And it was usually either blackjack or five card draw. We would usually have one hand be face up on the table and that would rotate. That was kind of the handicap hand that was the demonstration hand so that we could all do this math. And I realize now that that I'm describing something that is super unusual. (laughs) The interesting thing, and this is a story that I tell my professional colleagues there's a section of my resume that I intentionally removed. Connor's father and I not have worked together, but I have worked on a similar problem space that Connor's father worked on. When I was in the UK working for a printer company of all things, there's a part of the PDF spec, which is Adobe's document spec, associated with cryptography, which your father worked on, right? Yeah, I think he did um, the digital signatures and so, making sure that they were actually tied to the pdf in a pretty strict way i I thought he was actually the the secondary stuff which is associated with the actual cryptography uh he might have been but i think when he was doing that i was maybe 10 or 11 and so i wasn't getting like real explanations just yeah my suspicion is i may have had this conversation with your father anyway this is the part of my resume that i don't put down because it was literally six months worth of testing various hypotheses associated because the spec was written, and this clearly is a corporate thing, it's not to do with your father personally, uh, was written in such a way that you actually needed to do a lot of experimentation to actually implement the specification. But yeah, it was funny because that's one of the parts of my resume where I intentionally don't put any cryptography, I don't put any of this aspect <laughs> to my work, because I was literally pulling out handfuls of hair trying to get this stuff working. And when I met your father, I think the world is good at producing irony. Like, all I see in the world, if there's any notion of any spirituality or whatever it's just optimized associated with irony and when i met your father i thought this is a perfect circle because this was the part of my career where i just thought there must be a human being actually creating this stuff which is causing me just such an embodiment of frustration and when you i need to illustrate this to the listeners connor's parents live in a beautiful house a house of just uh, it ticks so many boxes for so many people that go into it it's amazing actually i mean we had three people Uh, Jay, Michelle, and I went to the house. We all like different parts of the house, but we all really like the house. So to wander around Connor's family home and to get a sense that this was in part created through the part of the PDF spec that had caused... (laughs) It was actually literally probably one of the reasons that I felt most comfortable with leaving the UK. We were in a beautiful part of the UK. It was absolutely wonderful. The work wasn't particularly great. But through that period of time, Michelle's parents were getting ill and I was working on this aspect of the PDF spec. And it was just like, this is a good excuse to leave the UK. Let's just pass on this this problem space to some other poor engineering schmuck and let's get out of here. And in contrast to this, when I met your father, your father, clearly amazing and very polite and pleasant gentleman to interact with. But I just look back in great irony of this one part of my life implementing this one spec. So... Connor and I have a few levels of communication, a few levels of insight, and a few levels of background. But I wanted to talk, actually, you put down MechWarrior. Yeah. So I played MechWarrior, the board game, or not board game, the, the pen and paper game, with the very large rulebook, and it takes a long time to adjudicate if you don't really know what you're doing. I think I ended up playing, we played through, I can't remember how the years were numbered but we played through some some minor part of the main set of campaigns within the classic mech warrior world we started on mining colonies and eventually there were missions in a world full of skyscrapers that was just prior to dungeons and dragons so interesting yeah interesting yeah for me 
Mick came through Robotech on the Zentradi, and I'm looking up here. One of the things that I did do at the uh, New Jersey Toy Con was actually buy a human motorcycle kind of robot combination, which comes not from Macross, but from the other thing that contributes to Robotech. So the notion of mechs and particularly large human piloted robot like creatures initially came to me through Robotech, but then obviously also mech warrior and all the related i mean there were so many kind of sub genre aspects to that thing and you know it's fascinating because this is actually part of my disillusionment from D. these kind of things actually made me disillusioned with D because the there were systems at the time there still are actually which enabled full spectrum character play which means that you could start with a character that was in the modern world put them into a futuristic world put them into a fantasy world and the character could coexist in all those locations with a rule set accordingly. And this was something that I always thought was like the holy grail, that with D&D, unfortunately, you're very limited. I mean, there is potential for them to go to, like, god planes and, uh, let's use the term orient again, even though no longer politically correct, all these kind of areas, but there was never the potential for the character to go into the future or hang out with pirates in the, you know, Caribbean or anything like that. And... Yeah, certainly this was part of my initial disillusionment from D&D. You have friends that, I mean, can you talk a little bit about the shipping crate role-playing game and all this kind of stuff? I mean, talk about that. The shipping containers come in because I um, because I, I work in logistics, and so I think about logistics all the time, and I think about the industrial standards that make the modern world happen and they all relate to each other right so shipping containers are two standard pallets wide and those widths are also tied to the standard width of railroad cars um, and there's an interrelation there and all of these standards go back and back and back to empire and so combining that with role-playing games seemed sort of natural because if you're going to be mapping the modern world you're going to be throwing shipping containers in there you're going to be blowing up vampires in some industrial warehouse well that industrial warehouse is going to actually need to be accurate and so shipping containers were kind of the first thing i thought of that would be easy to do and i made a couple of papercraft ones years and years ago and then i've been kind of remaking them ever since and that's mostly because my job was busy enough that instead of actually having a hobby i just like attempted the same small hobby project over and over again for about six years so that's kind of where that ended up yeah, I have a factory made out of laser-cut parts, and in a box I have a series of you know, bombed cityscape, for want of a better term, just like fractions of buildings, and in some cases whole buildings, which are all made out of laser-cut pieces. And the things that I found in the road trip that I undertook late last year, I mean, the shipping containers of the US are mobile homes. They are, shipping containers are also pretty ubiquitous through the US, but in terms of actual things that build towns now, like shipping containers, mobile homes are that thing. And what I found fascinating was within model rail and within role-playing and within even futuristic war games, both shipping containers, which you'd think there'd be a lot of, and trailer homes, which you'd also think there'd be a lot of, completely and utterly unrepresented. In model rail, there are a couple of very cutesy mobile homes that have like flower gardens and all this kind of stuff but it's not the, the moldy festering mobile homes that you see out in colorado or wyoming or at your home state of pennsylvania so yeah i get frustrated that these things this detritus that the world produces currently very difficult actually to find in a you know 28 millimeter scale or o scale or ho scale in the model rail fraternity it's almost like we've lost a sense of the great beauty of this industrial wasteland that we're creating, right? Yeah, so I, I actually live in that industrial wasteland. I, I purposefully purchased a house in the Monongahela Valley in Pittsburgh. The city's, uh, well, it's not the city's recycling plant. It's a private recycling company that takes 100% of the city's recycling and then tries to make money on it plant is about four blocks from my house there's 
I think six CSX lines, all of which are active, mm-hmm. uh, that all go longitudinally sort of from south of my house to north of my house up the valley. Yeah, like I, I like, I don't even, I'm not quite sure where it started. I've really been trying to figure out when it started, but I like industry a lot. I like hearing the noise of it. Uh, I like that I hear trains all the time. I think it's like a really soothing sound. It's the biggest thing that we've ever built, you know, uh, taken as a whole system. It's the biggest thing that we've ever built cohesively. You know, it's the biggest thing where, where there was one vision, there was one standard, and it's it, you find it everywhere, you know? Yes, yet strangely not romanticized or understood except for a very small number of us, which I think is really... One of the things that interests me about model rail is the model rail aesthetic. And the model rail aesthetic is very much kind of folksy, New Englandy kind of stuff, which really doesn't represent a majority of the US or the world for that matter. There are Puritans, and actually what's interesting is the folks that demand extreme realism in industry, most of them don't live in the US. I mean, it's interesting that model rail in the US is a folksy thing. Whereas the folks that are really interested in high detail industry stuff are typically in Europe and now increasingly on mainland China and places like Hong Kong and Taiwan. As you say, the ubiquity of shipping containers and these kind of things just lends them to, you know, adding these elements to their models in quite extreme ways in some circumstances. But yeah, it's fascinating. I unfortunately didn't get to Pittsburgh in our road trip. It was relatively close to parts, but we had just been through West Virginia. And for me, West Virginia was so welcoming in a variety of different ways. And we were also on a relatively tight timeline. We were running a little bit late. But also to see rural Pennsylvania was strangely familiar to me. It was actually very interesting traveling through just, you know, little places before we got to, I don't know, I think the the last kind of two and a half hours, even to Westchester, which isn't in Philadelphia proper, it very quickly became a kind of megaropolis-like experience. There was no more vegetation. It was just all, what do they call them? Uh, turnpikes, right? <laughs> it was just all either turnpikes or surface streets or all this kind of stuff. And yeah, I guess I'm going to have to get to Pittsburgh eventually because certainly you are a great acolyte for the city. But also I similarly love areas in, you know, Ohio and Indiana where you see these old rusting hulks of factories. And it strikes me that, you know, Pittsburgh probably has plenty to offer in that particular way as well. So we tore a lot of them down in the 90s. Mm. Uh, there are a couple of salient ones that are still around. And certainly if you if you allow for an hour driving in any given direction, there's a lot. Within an hour of driving from Pittsburgh, you can get to the edge of West Virginia and the edge of Ohio. Mm. Uh, you can get about halfway to the closest part of Maryland. So you can get into some of the other two states you mentioned if you allow for that. But yeah, no, there's there's a lot. And certainly the drive across Pennsylvania is so... You go through about five or six different geographic regions, and those really inform the way that we've built out those different parts of the state. And they're a little bit like, at a much more local level, the the term would be like an ecotone, uh, a different piece of the landscape that has been grown differently, or different things are growing in it, you know. Certainly this trip has reiterated how some of the states are defined by the geography. And I think in particular of Utah and Wyoming, Wyoming, as soon as you enter it, feels like a completely different place in terms of just the landscapes and what have you than Utah. It's like literally across the border and, you know, 10 minutes later, you know you're in Wyoming. You're not in Utah anymore. And yeah, when, only, when, my, yeah. Uh, when, when, the, when my partner and I moved from Los Angeles back to Pittsburgh, this was about a decade ago, uh, we went Los Angeles to Reno to Salt Lake to... Colorado Springs to Omaha to Chicago to Pittsburgh. So I think we actually did a bunch of your guys's drive on that drive. But yeah, I distinctly remember like leaving Salt Lake, going up in elevation quite a bit, 
and then the state border was there, and then suddenly the landscape was totally different. That's one of the amazing things about this country, that the diversity of landscape is very, very real. But I wanted to talk a little bit, speaking of diversity of landscape, you put down scouting as a topic to discuss, and I absolutely love opining on scouting. But in terms of your experience scouting, what what did you do? How long were you a scout? What were your experiences? Uh, So I was a scout, I guess, from when I was about nine until maybe 13, maybe 12. And I was a scout with my friend Nick. Then Nick moved away in sixth grade. No, at the end of sixth grade. It must have been sort of fourth through sixth grade. The local troop met at a church which I think was either non-denominational or um, Episcopalian, but like California Episcopalian. In terms of camping and these kind of things, I mean, what were your scouting experiences, aside from just meeting Oh, yeah, yeah. A lot of it was merit badges, uh, but there were a couple of big camping events. We did... I think troop level events. Wait, oh man, it's been so long. The troop is like the hundred boys, right? I don't know. I had to, I was part of a relatively small troop, and then there were what jamborees. There were regional jamborees, and then there were yeah. larger events. So certainly, and then we had like yeah. a sort of squad, but they didn't call it a squad because uh, it was the scouts, not the marines. That was, I think, six or seven boys. And then there were maybe 10 squads in our troop because it was a pretty big one. Yeah, so we camped sort of the seven boys. We did that maybe three times a year. And then twice a year, there was a camp out event that was usually maybe two nights with a big day of activity in the middle. And that was with the whole troop. And that was usually at either in like state land or at I guess there must have been private campgrounds that kind of catered to this. Mm. Um, And then there was a jamboree that was at, oh, I can't remember where it was. It was south of the bay, about three and a half hours. It Mm. was in a bunch of redwoods. And we went there the year after a very, very large, famous structure that had been built over the course of about 20 years had collapsed and killed a kid. And so they had torn the whole thing down. Hmm. So we were the first troop to not experience the super dangerous wood struck. Interesting. Interesting. For me, the scouts were probably only about a year's worth of time. I was kicked out of the scouts for probably a variety of reasons. But the main reason was that I had a toe removed and I was out for two weeks in hospital having the toe removed. And this messed up my chances, even though I had all the merit badges that I needed. For whatever reason, the parents just decided that ran the scouts that I wasn't going to become, I think, a sixer from what's the... So I wasn't going to be like the lieutenant of the the group. And all my friends became the lieutenants and all the young boys came in. And I just thought, nuts to this. But I had a friend who continued on with scouting and I would go to some of the campouts with him. I did also what is called the Duke of Edinburgh, a man who is still alive, a very curious character, the Duke of Edinburgh Awards, which meant that in high school I did basically scouting-related stuff. The best thing about the Duke of Edinburgh thing was it was co-educational. So you had basically teenage boys and teenage girls in tents together, which, as far as I'm concerned, should be compulsory. And it's interesting, actually, now that the scouts are moving to not having, you know, just male scouts. I think that's, from my perspective at least, I know an, I have a number of friends, particularly through the Model Rail fraternity, that said that this was going to be the end of civilization as we knew it when the scouts started admitting, you know, girls as well as boys. But certainly my experiences with Duke of Edinburgh was associated with basic survival skills, which is somewhat what the scouts should teach, but not actually probably what they do in general. A lot of, like, making campfires from nothing, creating drinking water, lots and lots of trekking, lots of compass movements and all the kind of fun stuff that really you should get through the scouts. But for me, the scouts, and I've actually substantially reduced my number of scouting books, but for the longest period of time, collecting scouting books was a kind of adult incarnation of the scouts for me. 
And I think you have a similar interest in scouting books. I had a similar experience in scouts. Of, of There wasn't really too much about survival uh, <laughs> in there um, beyond the merit badges. But if mm. you didn't really want to focus on, on, on seriously living in the woods or uh, being able to survive off the land, then you didn't have to. But uh, I did get into some amount of survival things. Uh, a couple years later, towards the end of my teenage years, I went to like a river rafting summer camp that was about four weeks long. But what wasn't super clear, because the language on their website, and it must have been pretty early on, so it was like a static HTML website, but the language was pretty coded that it was a juvenile delinquent rehabilitation camp <laughs> and so like the the whitewater rapids and the physical danger of being in in some of the dangerous parts of nature was not nearly as terrifying as like the lord of the flies like fellow campers mm. but it also thinking back on it so the the counselors were all going to uc santa cruz and i remember this really distinctly because while we were driving around Northern California, at some point we pulled the van into a gas station and one of the counselors used a payphone to call into the PBX system at UC Santa Cruz and register for her classes for the fall. But the people who ran the camp were a volunteer firefighter who was a Vietnam vet and his like ex-Marine buddies who just ran this camp and were hard asses when the kids were around and I think drank a lot of beer when they weren't. The kids facilitated the beer, right? The kids basically paid for the beer. Yeah, I think that was the deal. And then, so I got a lot of survival lessons, but they were survival lessons of the form of like, let me tell you about this time that I was doing advanced recon. <laughs> Charlie came at me from all sides. Before I knew it, I was in a bamboo cage being submerged in water. And that's how you have to survive. It didn't get to the bamboo cage phase. <laughs> I think he kind of, he drew a lot of his stories more from his, uh, like, emergency wilderness rescue in California, <laughs> in Northern California, yes. um, sort of, like, phase. Um, so there was a lot more kind of weird Native American spirituality injected into mm. this whole discussion because I guess like while he was working as an EMT or a whatever emergency wilderness person, he had like a like a native buddy. <laughs> a wind talker, yes. Yeah. Which now that I'm saying it really seems super dubious. <laughs> On a lot of levels. Yes, yes. Speaking of super dubious, you have medical marijuana done. We'll get to that eventually. But I did want to talk about one thing, finally, associated with scouting. All my knowledge of survival was put to the test when I was about 19. And a friend and I decided that we were going to do a, a relatively long trek involving a part of northern New South Wales, which at the time was going through some kind of pseudo-paramilitary assault from various sides for various reasons speaking of lord of the flies and that really was 14 days that tested everything i knew about survival including self-suturing and a bunch of other things now ironically even after having this experience and losing you know a substantial amount of body weight and just turning up back in sydney looking like i had you know, I was just very emaciated when I finally made it back into civilization. I decided to do the same experience again when I was probably about 20, 21, maybe two years later when I was 21, just because it was such an amazing experience. And one of my frustrations, particularly in later life and to a certain extent with married life, is that I don't spend time in the wilderness camping like I used to do. And certainly I've thought about buying a property out in the middle of nowhere and actually a number of my family members particularly on my mother's side well actually that's not true both sides both my parents sides of the family have people that ha live remotely and live off the grid all this kind of stuff i really have a strong interest in but i just have no means of facilitating it as a workaday schlub um, that being said anything is possible in the future but you still actively go out and camp in you know, areas in West Virginia and stuff like that currently, right? Uh, I do. So I, I have um, 
so I, I've lived in Pittsburgh since 2004. Is that right? Yeah, on and off since 2004. We were in Los Angeles for about a year. So yeah, I know a lot of people. And Pittsburgh is kind of a, a catchment for people who live in small towns in West Virginia, Ohio, and Western Pennsylvania who need to get to the big city. Pittsburgh is the big city. Like, that's the place to go. And so there are a number of people in my sort of circle of friends who are from rural West Virginia or rural Pennsylvania uh, or a family who still live there. I'm blessed with, with access to a couple of different camps, I guess, uh, and <laughs> some federal land, <laughs> which I know only by, by GeoPoint. Yes. Yeah, no, it's certainly something that I miss in my general life. My brother still periodically goes out camping, and I have cousins. I mean, my uncle's property was a couple of years ago nearly burnt down in a substantial bushfire and i reflect very heavily that the quality of life that my uncle has has certain dangers associated with it and bushfires are one of them certainly in northern california and also southern california bushfires have come through i follow a, a few families on youtube that have been really horribly affected by the bushfires in one case it's caused a family to separate basically and there's always a trade-off in a quality of life that people seek and the folks that live remotely have to live through all these circumstances which to a certain extent thankfully don't impact us in the cities ironically my in-laws are an interesting tie-in both associated with cargo crates and living remotely because they live relatively remotely and don't have some of the benefits that i'd like to have in living remotely but certainly when i want to get away from cellular reception and this kind of stuff staying at my in-laws or near my in-laws always gives me a sense of that but they live out in the desert they don't live in you know wilderness areas with trees or what have you they literally just live in the middle of nowhere and that's always been an interesting i mean i guess <laughs> i talk to my wife's sisters periodically about what it means my in-laws have been in ill health for more than a decade and there's always the threat that they'll pass away at any given moment. And if any of us have to take over the land that they have, they used to own a steel business. And this amount of steel, the sheer volume of steel that they still have on their property, and they have a full-sized cargo container on their property as well. Civilized people aren't intent, you know, you shouldn't be dealing with this kind of stuff in general. So, yeah, it's interesting, the whole living remotely and all the additional things that come through it, not always in forested areas, but sometimes in the middle of a desert as well. My biggest familiarity with with the rural areas in Pennsylvania comes from uh, the, the years that I worked at the Pittsburgh Food Bank, uh, which serves this big 11-county region that goes all the way out to Johnstown, all the way north up to Newcastle, mm -hmm. uh, and all the way down to the so southernmost tip of the, the state down in Greene County. And so the program I ran was was um, these large-scale produce distributions. Uh, but so we would go out and give produce away to 500 families, 800 families, uh, depending on the location. Uh, and so I, I talked to a lot of, of people who lived very, very remotely. And I asked them a lot of questions about where they were getting their food, what kind of food they were getting, you know, because it's not like people who are getting food assistance just get food assistance and don't get food elsewhere. The food assistance is is the, the four or five days worth of food that gets them from like day 27 to day one of the next month, you know, mm. when like the paycheck hits or when the, the EBT balance refreshes. It is an interesting country in that regard. The nature of poverty and yeah, these kind of things, I, from where I live, but also traveling through the US is just so completely overwhelming. And it's interesting in my area, I live in a house that has doubled in value nominally in the past three years. Yet on the corner, there is still a food bank that gives out food to, as you say, not maybe as many as you did, but more than a hundred families come and get food assistance. So you have the striking contrast with Silicon Valley on one side and just people that are still, as you say, struggling to find the, the days to fill food-wise. The thing that strikes me about your part of the world, particularly the rural parts of your part of the world, is they really, the, the primary industries that they have had 
have not really weathered well. I mean, certainly the people we talked to through West Virginia, mining was the primary industry, uh, logging secondarily. But uh, still, so so yeah. I, I, I would actually contend your framing of this. <laughs> it's not to say that the mining industry has not weathered well, and it's not to say that any of the industries that are in those areas haven't weathered well. Those industries have done perfectly fine. You know What they've done, though, is that they've treated all of those areas the way that empires used to treat colonies, Certainly. right? Yeah. They're extractive areas. They're areas where uh, you go in, you take the stuff, and you bring it back to the empire, right? They're the hinterlands that you pull from in order to support the engine of your economy. Yeah, and, and so like, has, has West Virginia and southwestern Pennsylvania been extracted from in many different ways over the last 200 years? Yes, it very much has. Yeah, clearly, I guess the industries have done well. It's just the people in the areas have not done well from those industries in terms of sustenance over long periods of time. And I mean, when yeah, you look it's, at, yeah, well, you yeah. can kind of see the high watermark, and you can mm. also understand that, like, that high watermark's never coming back, you know? Uh, and it, that's what's really hard and heartbreaking and beautiful about living in this place and in this time is that, you know, Pittsburgh's not. <laughs> like a city that has had a golden history pittsburgh's a city that's very wounded it was a city that that became the the workbench of the world and, and was this place that totally gave itself over to making this work happen and producing the material that was needed to build bridges highways buildings infrastructure across the whole world and we don't do that anymore right like the people who ran that realized that they weren't actually in the supporting Pittsburgh business. They were in the steel business, and that the steel business was actually the finance business, and that they could take it somewhere else, and they did. You know, and so we're a city that that, that used to have multiple times more people living in it than do now, and used to have support and economy and money coming in. Doesn't anymore, and has had to deal with that for years and years and years. And that, as you say, is a metaphor for the. The industries, right? The industries have minimized labor over a period of time, primarily, I mean, honestly, because of the dangers. Obviously, there's a financial incentive as well to minimize labor. But yeah, it's an interesting double-ended metaphor associated with the fact that the shrinking that has occurred is directly proportional to the shrinking, or the shrinking in the areas is directly proportional to the shrinking in the industries, which also, when you have this kind of shrinking, it's the high watermark, right? The high watermark is then faded from, and you get to see that in very demonstrable ways through these areas. So, yes. Pittsburgh, when it was built to the, when it had its big build out in the 1890s through about the 1920s, that was also an era before the miniaturization of all of these processes. Mm. Um, and it was an era before the miniaturization of all kinds of processes, right? Like it was an era before, um, before you had streetcars, you know, the first streetcars in Pittsburgh were drawn by horses and the, the innovation was actually that the carriage was on a dedicated rail. So the wheels broke less frequently and making that motorized was only something that happened when motors got invented not only was it built to be this giant industrial place but it was built using huge baroque versions of the technology that you know it was rebuilt with in the 40s for the war effort and and built again in the 50s and 60s when new things got built you know but the city itself all the districts are sized in 1890s factory sizes yes yeah, certainly I've lived in areas in the UK that have that, but haven't seen the reduction of labor because other industries have come in and just taken the labor force. And I think that's what's interesting, kind of compare and contrast the similar industrial UK cities. Well, there has been some reduction. Other things have come and filled the void, which I just don't see happening in your area. And I don't know what, what it's to do with in terms of like the different kinds of industrialists or whether there are always the industries that come and swallow up labor in smaller more confined <laughs> countries i don't know what the logic is but it's so i that, yeah. i think of it a little bit like um like a permaculture problem so in a sense you could think of all of the available jobs in a city as being the mix of different kinds of plants that you're growing on a farm mm -hmm. and if you have a mix where everything's tied to one big monocrop 
then when that monocrop fails or when uh, your seed supplier starts embargoing you or whatever metaphor you want to use to say that like the industry left, the rest of the ecosystem is probably not set up to actually support itself now that this big thing's gone. Too many other structures were dependent or too many other structures have been formed so that they were reliant upon there being something big right there. And so when this big thing leaves, trying to replace it with a bunch of medium-sized things doesn't quite match what is left. And this actually vends perfectly into, I think, what will be the the final topic for this evening, which for the longest time actually was on my list of notes for Attic Aficionados with my discussion with Brandon, and that's associated with the changes that Pennsylvania has seen with regards to what's loosely called medical marijuana. And this is something that I find fascinating because each state has enacted their own version of medical marijuana as they've moved to decriminalize in some regard, but actually commercialize uh, cannabis. And what I find fascinating is following the transition from illegal to medical to recreational and the various permutations and completely different methods that a number of states are using. Can you talk a little bit about what's happened in Pennsylvania in the past year or so associated with this? Yeah, so I think in the last year, a very restricted form of medical use only being sold through dispensaries uh, and only a limited number of dispensaries and a very controlled and state-controlled kind of market is what came through. And one of those dispensaries is being, actually, I think two of them are being built in Pittsburgh. Uh, and they're being built right off the highways. So one of them is in a neighborhood called Squirrel Hill. And it's in this old 70s-looking building that was, I think, some sort of like chemistry lab back office or some kind of heavy industry or chemical industry office building. And you can kind of imagine this 1970s There's like white columns and then big fake stone for the whole building, one story, low rise kind of building that's right in the middle of this weird highway interchange at the bottom of the hill right there, right next to these big tunnels. And then the other one is in what used to be a plumbing warehouse in Oakland, which is the big student neighborhood. Uh, Pittsburghers will be angry at me for calling it a student neighborhood. It's a neighborhood that has multiple universities and a large amount of student population Mm. but there are people who live there god damn it (laughs) and they'll tell you (laughs) where i'm from in australia decriminalized in the early 90s and literally it was grown everywhere like cannabis from where i'm from canberra from i don't know my teenage years the group of us were just walking down the street and one guy jumped a fence and came back with a six-foot plant it was just omnipresent and that meant that it was not commercialized It was something that was just easily accessible and actually vastly more easily accessible than alcohol was. And what was curious through that was the ACT, or Canberra, where I'm from, and South Australia, which was where I was born, were the only two states or only two, you know, entities in Australia that maintained this view. And then, obviously, through the 90s and 2000s, there was all this kind of strange legislation, particularly associated with hydroponic grows and all this stuff, which Hillary Clinton was the most recent person to say this kind of stuff. The notion that you know, cannabis became amazingly strong through the 90s to the point where it's now comfortably equivalent to heroin and all this other kind of nonsense that you know people talk about who have no business talking about this kind of stuff. But what interests me in California is that we have the legislation that came through that people actually voted on, the politicians have completely rewritten. And they've rewritten in a way where we now have monopolies that control the state associated with cannabis. And as has occurred through our general discussion, also a vast quantity of what is grown here, there's more cannabis grown in just Sonoma County, which is a relatively small county in California, than the state can use, just in terms of volume. So what has happened from California is that everyone in there, you know, anyone who has a certain acreage seems to be growing an allotment of cannabis, which just disappears, like literally disappears off the books. So the movement to legalization is very strange here, 
because there is still a substantial, probably 80% of the market is still illegal associated with the fact that it's not being regulated or taxed or anything. It's just vast quantities of cannabis is grown and then it makes its way, you know, eastward accordingly. So there's all this kind of strange stuff that you observe living in a state that goes through this. Well, I've only seen the transition from medical to recreational. I've followed medical historically because when I'd come here periodically, I'd know people that would have medical cards. But it is an interesting change that is kind of coming through this country and in contrast to this you have jeff sessions right so in contrast to all this you still have federal politicians and the way i look at it is primarily associated with money i think it might be in the order of 20 billion this year but last year was in the order of 18 billion dollars the federal government gave to the states to continue to promote the criminalization of cannabis which is extraordinary i mean california collected the money a number of other states that have both legal and uh, medical collected that federal money and this is the carrot that sessions has to say well now we're going to start doing raids and what have you and in contrast to this the states that had legal and even to a lesser extent medical were able to make revenue i mean the states that were legal were able to make revenue far in excess of what they got from the federal government associated with the illegality so all this stuff is working itself out in a very curious way and culturally i come from a place where it's like basil or tomatoes or I mean, the whole notion that cannabis is the sin in this country that is taxed and regulated and, you know, people pay 60 to to $100 a gram for certain things now associated with legal. I mean, it's all really just completely crazy and all associated with just maximizing the money that's being taken out of this thing. But in parallel to this, they've not been able to get the wine drinkers or anything like that, like... The whole notion that decriminalization, well, medical and then commercialization, recreation, what have you, would bring in new cannabis customers is not the case. Like it's increased maybe 5%, but not as dramatically as people had hoped. What you find is just that they make medical harder to access and the medical patients will pay more to get the legal stuff. And then there will be a few people that go out and get the legal stuff, but they're not converting wine drinkers. They're, there's still a stigma. And part of that stigma is the naming conventions. Part of that stigma is associated with the long-standing, curious, legal status of this herb. But yeah, it's very strange coming to this country and observing this stuff as someone who historically has lived in a place where the commercialization part has never been there, but the existence and continuation of plant has been there continuously. And all this curiosity, syntax, plant, count you know all the stuff that's associated with the fact that doesn't actually address the war on drugs like the war on drugs is like a failed enterprise i mean the whole thing is crazy to me but i think you have a relatively unique perspective because you're seeing this wave move in and what struck me about pennsylvania initially and i did some research while brandon and i were still talking for season one was that um the law the medical law was written where medical patients couldn't even consume cannabis in certain ways Like, they had to go through very strict things. Firstly, there were no dispensaries. But secondly, when they actually got the cannabis, the way in which they consumed it was in a set of very curious prescriptions. And now, thankfully, as you say, they're getting dispensaries built, which starts to erode some of this curiosity. Eventually, it's going to be recreational coast to coast. Eventually, it's going to happen. But through this process, the medical is lost. Through this process, a bunch of other things. It's just all strange that legislatures are controlling so much of this thing that the underlying element of the fact that this is just a plant which literally grows like a weed it's all lost in this whole thing so you have a relatively yeah, unique well, and, perspective and certainly um it it was surprising to me that these laws have moved forward in pennsylvania at all given the stance that the state takes on alcohol which is that Well, there's been a revolution in the last two years, so this is different. But for the most part, if you're buying wine or hard liquor, you're buying it at a state store. And if you're buying beer, up until recently when these laws were relaxed, if you were buying a case, you had to buy it from like a package store or beer distributor. Uh, And if you were buying less than a case, you had to buy it from either a bar which if you had a bar with a full liquor license, you got an off license to sell beer as well. Or like a pizza parlor, 
that had purchased a beer license to sell beer with their pizza, which I think also forced them to build a tiny liquor bar. (laughs) So there are a lot of pizza places that have this sort of about four feet worth of bar, maybe like six bottles, which is crazy. Uh, And then there are a couple of counties that have blue laws, so you can't sell on Sundays. And I think there's at least, there are some dry townships, there are some dry counties. It's this whole patchwork. Uh, And so it's crazy to me that actually, like, this plant that's been illegal for however many decades became at least a little bit legal at all, um, because because Harrisburg is so, so far behind the times and so unable to get legislation moving forward very well at all. In contrast to tobacco, where Pennsylvania has some of the most relaxed tobacco laws in the nation and the lowest taxation of tobacco, I think, of of all the states. But again, I, I regularly say this, sometimes jokingly, sometimes seriously to my more conservative friends, the founding fathers had all this stuff written out, right? You basically are supposed to live in the state that represents your views and there will be a diversity of states with a diversity of views and you should just move your happy little ass, which I use occasionally when I describe this, to the state that agrees with your various political stances. And thankfully, there's a sufficient number in the union that people can find their states because obviously everyone moves freely in the United States. Yeah, and that that is a dubious claim. I think that it's in some ways easier than ever to do that moving. Certainly, if you're going to a major city and you have a little bit of money, you can just show up somewhere and like order a bunch of clothing off Amazon. Worst comes to worst, we have a giant global supply chain and whatever material deficit you have as you move from city to city, like you, you could order a new one, which is crazy. The cost of clothing in the US is particularly cheap, certainly compared to the UK and Australia. And one of the things about moving here is that when you relocate, not just clothing, I mean, Walmart enables you to get a full set of infrastructure, telephone, bedding, this kind of stuff, very, very cheaply. When we did the same in the UK, we literally spent thousands of pounds just buying basic home items because there was no equivalent to Walmart, whereas here... Maybe $500 at most got us a telephone, bedding, everything we needed, even basic plastic shelving to kind of set up. And I think these costs in the US are very different. Now, you're right, there is Amazon, but Amazon internationally is very, very different. And try to get an American package into Australia, you will see some very extraordinary things. There's protectionism. In a, and the EU also provides this kind of protectionism. I think the uh, the official Tom Barbelay meme for that is, this ain't the world, son. <laughs> this is New South Wales, yes. And with, with that, I think we can probably conclude this particular recording. Connor, it's been a real pleasure to record with you this evening. We will see how the fans react. This is the danger associated with taking an existing podcast with clearly two hosts of different perspective and then creating a season two with a new co-host. So we will listen to the fans associated with this. I know there was a number of requests for Art Web, Art Web's father, Lee Webb. I know Art. I know Art quite well. He has a young family. He has basically the same issues that Brandon had associated with recording, plus the fact that Art and I know each other socially. And Lee, I did reach out to, didn't get a response from him. So that thing, you know, sailed off onto the sunset. But um, what we will do here, Connor, is we will get feedback from the listeners, maybe topics, maybe ideas. We'll float this thing out there. But I think there were just so many people that wanted this Attic Aficionados thing to continue, maybe deeper dives into more nerd hobbies. I got a bunch of vinyl, for example, in front of me. There's a lot of stuff we could talk about potentially in season two. Thank you for being such a sport and coming on and recording. And hopefully we can do this thing in a semi-regular fashion going forward. Sure. It was my pleasure. I'll talk to you soon. Take care.